Welcome back to the Know and Do podcast. This is Justin Barton, and I'm super excited to be back doing a new form of podcast with the Know and Do podcast. I am starting to do more long-form conversations with people who have taken wisdom learned and earned from their life and implemented it into things that have made them who they are. And I'm starting out with a fantastic person. This is my next-door neighbor, Dick Erb. When my family and I moved here to Spokane, Washington about three and a half years ago, it is only because of his kindness that basically allowed us to survive the move from Mesa, Arizona to Spokane, Washington. The climate is quite different, as you might imagine. Anyways, as I have gotten to know Dick over the last three and a half years, I have learned that he is a wealth of knowledge, of experience, and that he has done some pretty amazing things. So sit back for the next hour and a half and enjoy this conversation in which we travel from Dick's early childhood through teenage years, through early adulthood, all the way up until where he is now at 85 years old and all of the adventures he's taken. The line that I want to point out and have you think about throughout this conversation is a thing that he quotes towards the end of the conversation and it's open your eyes. So sit back and open your ears and open your eyes and see what lessons you can apply into your life that Dick has learned from his life. I am sure that there are some points here that will be helpful to you no matter what stage of life you are in. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Since since we moved in a little over three years ago, I've always admired how you have been such a good example to me and my family Mm -hmm. and how um, you're always so willing to share your experiences, your faith, your hope, and all those things. So I wanted to have this discussion to kind of pick pick your brain, see where you come from, why <laughs> why you are the person you are. Mm-hmm. So what I want to start out with, if you don't mind, is from the beginning. In fact, before the beginning of, of your of your life. Where do you come from? Who your parents, grandparents, great grandparents, tell me a little bit about them and why and where you come to, and then we'll develop from there, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, I'm proud of my ancestry to the point that uh, my mother was a very, very God-fearing uh, student of the Bible and prayer warrior. She, uh, I can remember when I probably wasn't the living the life that the Lord would like to have me live in the high school and early college ages, but many times that I would come home later at night and I wasn't drinking or I wasn't but I knew that I wasn't living the good the good life that Christ had already taught me to to live and there would be my mother I could hear her through her bedroom door praying for me that I kind of brushed it off at that time but as I grew in the in my faith and in the Lord uh I began to really admire my mother's faithfulness. My f- dad, I had a uh, Down syndrome brother that was just uh, a year younger than I, and uh, my parents always felt that uh, God gave them, God gave him to them, 
and uh, it was their responsibility. But in those days, we're talking now in the early 30s, that uh, there was not the uh, accommodation for Down syndrome kids that there is today. Uh, they were dirty. They were not state governed by cleanliness. So my parents visited several of those and decided, no, we're going to accept the responsibility of, of raising uh, my brother. So in a sense, I really didn't have any sense because also in those days when a, uh, a parent had a Down syndrome child, the doctors warned them about having any more children because they would uh, most probably be, be uh, Downs also. So um, obviously I grew up with really no brothers and sisters I could play with or talk with. However, my brother was uh, fun in his own way, but uh, I would say he would be an average Down syndrome uh, boy. But he had his own language and awkward and didn't see well and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, that was the beginning of where I really started consciously observing what God meant uh, in a family. My grandparents on both sides were uh, Christian in the faith people. Again, it's hard for people of this age to totally understand because those were right after the Depression. Uh, people who lived day by day and uh, check by check for income uh, were happy people. They were content, not knowing the poverty that they lived in, but being accepted and uh, ex exercising their God-given talents by enjoying life. So do you see the terminology of the Great Depression almost as a misnomer then from what you just said there? Well, it's, it's a misnomer only that I don't think my grandkids, or even my kids, realize what living in the Depression was. Mm. Because in our class of people, nobody had any money. Right. Very few people had jobs. Talk about the horse and buggy age. No, the automobile was just uh, getting established. So it, it was a mode of lifestyle that it's just hard to imagine with the influence and the fluency of today's economy uh, for anybody to recall what real poverty was. Mm. Most everybody was in debt to a certain extent, but I had the peace of growing up knowing that my, especially my mother, was living with God's influence and, and having a peaceful heart uh, that uh, that was a big influence on my life. Very neat. So, so of all of the people in your life, your mother had the greatest influence on you. Right. Tell me a little bit about her parents. Why, why did she have that kind of belief system? My mother was the oldest of uh, eight brothers and sisters. Wow. She only finished the ninth grade because she had to quit school to support, help support the family. My true grandfather had left, uh, run off with whoever. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so uh, she became a Christian 
uh, in that transition time after she had quit school, and uh, my aunt owned a restaurant in, uh, in Flint, Michigan, and she was raised in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, during that time, I can't give you the detail as to how she became a Christian, but anyway, she gave her uh, life to the Lord probably in the early 20s, and then she met my father, uh, who was not a, a Bible-believing Christian at that time, mm-hmm. but um, she was, and she uh, lived her faith uh, very, very well. Mm. Very good. What, what's your mother's name? My mother's name is Leona Fay Herb. Leona Fay Herb. Sounds like a great woman. <laughs> what was your brother's name? My brother's name was Edwin Dale, but everybody called him Ted because that's how he pronounced his name. Oh, <laughs> very neat. I uh, work with people who work with kids with Down syndrome and autism and cerebral palsy and and all of these different um, disabilities. So I have this, I never had it in my life directly, but now I work in that type of industry. So it's very, very rewarding to hear those types of stories. And there's a big struggle. There's real hardships in families that have siblings and children with special needs. Especially in that day, because... Anybody that had a Down syndrome child, I'm generalizing it by society, would kind of look down, like, mm-hmm. oh, there's something wrong with that family. Mm-hmm. I spent many, many hours kind of defending my da- my brother because he would sit out on the porch or he would be riding his tricycle uh, out in front of our house and, and uh, kids would come by and make fun of him and... Mm-hmm and call him names and all that kind of stuff. And uh, many times I uh, was on the verge of uh, maybe physically defending him, but uh, being small in stature, I uh, uh, used wisdom to overcome my uh, <laughs> my shamefulness, I guess, of, of my brother. But on the other hand, he, he uh, was loved by all of our family and uh, my cousins and... Uh, we all learned. I can start listing all of the lessons in life I learned from that uh, deficiency. In fact, one of the stories that I often uh, duplicate is uh, I had sympathy for Down syndrome uh, kids growing up. And when I got into the restaurant business and uh, one of my managers knew about my past and he said, uh, I've got a Down syndrome boy that's uh, come in and brought by his parents and uh, applied for a job. And, and I said, well, that's interesting. I'd like to talk to him. So I did. And, you know, I uh, kind of gambled, I guess, by not knowing him real well, the, the applicant. Mm-hmm. But we hired him as a dishwasher. And as it turned out, he was one of the very best employees that we ever had. Because his parents brought him in. You taught him what he could do, and uh, he didn't deviate from that. Uh, the only thing you had to be aware of, uh, anything that wasn't the norm, he would react to it uh, very uncomfortably. But other than that, he was there, dependable. His parents come and got him right at uh, shift-ending time, and uh, 
And he was really a pleasure to work for because you could depend on his uh, job performance. Oh, that's really neat. So what, what's another story or lesson you learned from Ted that maybe you haven't shared with a whole bunch of people or maybe you haven't really thought about it as a lesson learned, but looking back you might say, hmm, that was an interesting thing there. I love my brother. Probably would be hard on anybody not familiar with them to understand how you could love somebody that mentally and physically uh, wasn't uh, up to par, as we would call it. But uh, he was very, very lovable. Uh, he was not offensive in anything he did. If, kiddingly, I would come up and kind of sock him in the shoulder or something, first thing he'd want to do is hug me. Mm. He, he, he wasn't uh, defensive or offensive in any way. To me, it, it taught me how much better to love your brother than to defend or to uh, be defensive about anything that you might do that might not be agreeable to uh, a certain party. And for them to be offensive toward you, uh, I think you could just, and I I not always did that, Mm -hmm. but there were times when I used Ted as an example why not show love back to that person rather than, uh, than defensive? Yeah. Yeah. How, how, how old did Ted live to be? You know, my parents, doctors told my parents he would never live beyond seven. Mm-hmm. Then as seven came, he said, well, he'd never live beyond 15. And my uh, dear brother died at fi- uh, 61. Wow. So which he is lived. unusual. Yeah, that is that is a long lifespan. Mm-hmm. What a what a special opportunity. Your your kids then got to know him. Yeah, um, oh, probably yeah. grandkids, several grandkids. Yeah, they did. Wow, what kind of effect did that have on your kids and your grandkids having that relationship with Ted? They learned to love him, and kid him, mm-hmm. and uh, laugh with him. Mm-hmm. It was, I think, a great experience for them to be exposed to that type of child that uh, God made him and my parents accepted him for what he was and that alone I think was a big lesson after my mother passed away my dad finally put him into a private home that was licensed by the state and they could I think they could accept four or five children in their home my brother just loved it because being around uh, others like him, he felt very comfortable, hmm. and he he related well to them. Therefore, he was very, very comfortable. In fact, my dad said, well, you want to go home now? No, nope. <laughs> I'm going to stay here. So that was, uh, that uh. was a good feeling because my dad just never wanted to accept the fact that put him into a home, but it was good. Yeah, I did not know any of that, and that's really neat to to learn. And um, I see the kindness, the the understanding, maybe the patience that you learned in that mm-hmm. in my own interactions with you. You know, I I don't know that 
well, maybe I've done things that you've really said, oh, i got to be patient about this with Justin. But, you know, but I can see your, your interactions and your, your spirit about that, and that's really neat. Now, now, we've talked a little bit about your youth. You, can, you grew up and remember a lot of the, the Great Depression. What are your memories of, like, with the World War II era? How old were you, and what are your memories of that? Well, I was born in '33, which is kind of at the tail end of the of the depression. Mm-hmm. But I very, very well remembered uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had uh, four uncles uh, that were immediately drafted uh, in World War II. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, all came home safe. Wow. World War II was a was an era that I wished I could go back and relive because I wasn't politically uh, knowledgeable of all the things that were going on in that war, but I started making a scrapbook that I still have. Hmm. I gave my mother helped me of uh, incidents all through the war that uh, made headlines. And when uh, we were defeated at a particular combat, what that meant morally, and then, of course, when we were defeated uh, in two or three instances, that was quite a setback. But, of course, the the big thing that stuck in my mind was all the things we couldn't have. Mm. We, uh, my dad at that time, uh, owned a uh, 1937... Chevrolet, and uh, during the war you couldn't buy tires, so if we had a flat tire, it's either go buying a retread someplace or else uh, uh, just put the car to bed because it couldn't uh, couldn't drive it on rims. Right. And uh, and then having to go to the grocery store with my mother, and she would get out her stamp book, and it took stamps to buy beef and buy sugar and buy gas and buy so many items that we were not free to buy unless we had stamps to because of rationing or rationing mm-hmm. of uh, products so that's that's stuck in my mind but obviously i didn't know who the good guys and bad guys uh, were necessarily right, right. yeah and, and you mentioned you wish you were more aware politically what does that mean to you well right now i i have made it a kind of a I love to read about World War II. What caused it? What's the history of both the Germans and the Japanese? Mm-hmm. Why, why were they led down the road that they were, were uh, directed to, to uh, internally get such a hatred toward Americans? And uh, that hatred was, was example in so many theaters of war where they weren't satisfied with just killing somebody, Americans, they loved to see them suffer. Mm. And lessons learned, uh, not so much at that time, right? but golly, now after reviewing all those and reading about it, you wonder how in the world some of our armed force men even survived what the endangerment that they were encountering. Um, I still like to read uh, about World War II, of uh, the different theaters, and 
I had an uncle that, very surprisingly, he was a good guy. He's very, he's very uh, competitive. But he went over in Africa right after the war was declared in Germany. And uh, he went from Africa to Sicily to Italy to uh, shipped over to the coast of France mm. in the French theater. And he went all through that and never fired a shot. All he did was drive truck and drive the Jeep with the top echelon. He said he had many bullets whistle by him, but he never fired a shot. And I thought, wow. Wow. Uh, either the Lord was directly <laughs> <laughs> keeping him safe because I had another uncle that was right on the front down the Japanese theater of the Marines, mm. and he would go ahead with the front of armed forces uh, and vehicles mm -hmm. and radio back as to where the enemy was and all that kind of stuff. So his life was in danger for three or four years right on the front. So there's an example of the two. <laughs> wow. It's quite a different experience that both of them had right. with that. How did the uncle that uh, was on the Pacific front with the Japanese... How did he handle those experiences, and sh did he share them very often? No. No, I, I have a son-in-law now that was in the Vietnam War. He was on the front. Mm -hmm. uh, he had two Purple Hearts, wow. and he suffered one year of Agent Orange, mm. which is the uh, chemical that the United States used uh, in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was life or death for that year of trying to because he was discovered this in our medical uh, authorities and uh, the real specialists did not understand how to treat Agent Orange mm. and he went from hospital and he started with a cancer center because they treated it similar to uh, leukemia oh, okay he went from University of Michigan to three uh, cancer specialists in the East Coast, and everybody said when he walked in, uh, well, you're another sample. We don't know exactly how to treat you, but we have a system we'd like to try. Hmm. So he lived with that for almost a year. Wow. Of, uh, not knowing if what they were doing is going to help or, or hmm. not. But thankfully, he's, he pulled through that and uh, right now has two jobs and living a great life. Well, good. <laughs> Going back a little bit, you know, your youth, you were 8 to 12 years old during the United States uh, involvement War. in World War II. Who was your hero at that time? Yeah, my hero was um, the, my uncle that was on the Japanese theater Nobody, while they weren't allowed to, mail, all mail was right. censored. And so we never really knew the lives of how they were doing much at all during the war. But many of them, especially my uncle in the Japanese theater, saw so much blood and uh, killing of friends and that... He did not want anybody to talk to him about it. He wanted to put that in the past mm. because it was almost like putting him back into a depression if he talked about it or thought about it. Now, mm. obviously, he, 
probably when I was alone, he would recall some of that stuff. But And I, I find that that was, he was a hero for doing that. If I would have ever encountered any little tiny part of what they did, I'd sure like to put that out of my mind and yeah. rehash it. Yeah. What was that uncle's name? Ward. Ward. W-A-R-D. Yeah. Herb. No, Craven. Craven. My mother's side. Well, good. That's neat that he was your uncle or your hero. What kinds of interactions, and not related necessarily to his experience in the war, but what kinds of interactions did you have him with him in the, as you aged that either solidified or changed that view you had of him as a hero to you? Well, it's a sad story, mm. very sad, because he, in his recovery of the war, became an alcoholic, mm. and he died at a very early age as an alcoholic. Mm. Interesting. Alcoholism was real mm-hmm. in some of my ancestors. My real grandfather died at, uh, on my father's side uh, at the early 50s of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. My, my dad never would touch any alcohol in my house, and he was always afraid through the genetic of our family that I would become uh, involved. So he warned me about that at a very, very early, before even high school. Mm. Fortunately, I one gift I had, God gave me a very distaste for beer. I, I just <laughs> don't like it. So if yeah. somebody would invite me for having a beer, I could honestly say I don't like it nor do I feel that I want it. So <laughs> I guess that's an easy out when you yeah. don't like it. And that's a huge blessing. You yes. Know? I think that's Very a huge so. blessing, especially if that tendency towards yes. alcoholism and addiction is, is there. That's a huge blessing. Yeah. Um, Very much so. Very neat. So tell me how you and Kay met. Tell me that story. Oh, my goodness. It's kind of a long story, but when I... Uh, Served in the military, which is another story, but anyway, <laughs> I received a letter from my uh, cousin, and he said, hey, I've got a girl back in, in up here in Flint. Uh, I'm dating her roommate, and uh, I think you ought to meet her when you come back. Well, I got that letter, and I thought, oh, that's nice, because I had just broken up when I went into the military with a long-time girl. In fact, we were engaged for almost a year, but we broke up before I went in the military. Anyway, I came home, and I forgot about his note. So I asked the local sheriff in our town, I said, you go to church. Tell me where there's a church with some nice-looking girls. (laughs) And I dated one girl, and one time when we were in church here, a pianist was playing for a mm. big choir. I thought, man, she's kind of cute. <laughs> so I said to this girl who I was dating, uh, what's that girl's name? I think I know her, which was a lie. <laughs> and when he, she told me and wasn't looking, I wrote her name down in my Bible. And time went on, and uh, about two weeks later, I went to a Youth for Christ rally, huge, huge, back in those days, uh, several hundred people. And 
was seated way up in the balcony, and lo and behold, that same girl was playing the piano for all of this big choir again. Mm. And I said to my buddy, see that girl down there? I think I'm going to marry her someday. Mm. I hadn't even met her yet. I didn't. So then I found out what her name was uh, again and where she lived, and I wrote her a valentine. Mm. And uh, and she didn't know who it was, but she knew who I was mm. from another girlfriend. I called her, and that was our first date. First date was almost 11 hours long. Cause wow. I picked her up, and I think it was 3 in the afternoon, and I... Uh, we lived in the Flint area at that time, and then we drove to Detroit to see an ice skate show. Mm. Took her to dinner, to the show, and then on the way home, we had to stop and get a cup of coffee or something. Mm-hmm. I, I made up some excuse. Right. But anyway, we got home about two in the after or two in the morning from. <laughs> so that was our first date. Wow. <laughs> so, um, about how long was your courtship? Oh, my kids throw this in my face real long because it's when I preach to them and tell them about now if you meet the right girl you think is right make sure just don't jump into any great love affair right off the bat you know mm-hmm. you might feel it but so my story was I think and Kay always corrects me <laughs> from that first kind of the blind date it was uh, four weeks later, I asked her to marry her, marry me, and then five months later, we were married. Wow. So what kind of trials, or were there any trials or hiccups in that engagement period where, where you and or her went, is this really what I want to do? No, I don't think so, because hmm. I was 20, 23, and she was 22. Hmm. We both had kind of semi-serious uh, dating before that. And I am very, very goal-oriented, very, in all facets of my life. Hmm. And I had set a goal that I want a good job, I want to own a car, I want military service in back of me. But I had met all, and I thought, okay, Lord, I'm ready. Show me who she is. So uh, that's how it all happened. Wow. (laughs) Well, that's great. Kind of this checklist of... Of, of things going down and not that you know it's always a checklist but but knowing that you're driven towards that it's time lord show me what what where the next step is and where right. i need to go so tell me about your first job first career i went to an all-boys college semi-owned by general motors so i got my uh, degree bachelor of science in uh, industrial engineering and uh, Buick was my direct sponsor. So I, uh, in college, uh, that particular college, we went to school every other month, six days, a full eight hours a day during our uh, school time. Mm. It was all boys school. It was not a fun school to go to, no sports. Mm. It was all study and study. Uh, Just business, basically, huh? It really was. And then, of course, the month off, I worked at Buick, and every time, I, every other month, I went back into a different department. Hmm. 
And then I had to write a 15 to 20 page report on whatever I was assigned to that month in that particular department. And that assignment come from the usually the superintendent of that factory. Then they would have to approve my report before I went back to school. So interesting. And then I didn't get my official degree. They call it the fifth year project, where I wrote a thesis on a particular uh, project in the industry. Hmm. So and then that had to be approved before I get a degree. So then you worked for Buick, I'm assuming, for GM. For Buick. How long did you work with for them? 16 years. They guaranteed that when you went to GM, if you graduated with any kind of good academics, finished your thesis, and got that approved, that guarantee you a position. And usually it was immediate supervision, or in my case, it was the engineering department. So uh, hmm. that, that's kind of the consolation you had when you attend school, that you had that job. Yeah, so from that experience in the school that was basically sponsored by, you were kind of an apprentice or almost an indentured servant at that time right. to Buick, right? Right. So what did that experience and then working with Buick, what types of things did you learn from those experiences that you draw on and have drawn on throughout your life? I was fortunate, and I'm going to say that just about on every job I ever had. I was fortunate in the late 50s and all through the 60s. This is going to be hard to understand, but there was more change in the automobile industry mechanically than any other time in our history. Uh, and I could go through and tell you all the, the <laughs> changes that we went through because the engineering department that I worked and worked my way up in was the designers would design a particular part of a car and then give it to us. And we had to find the machinery and the tooling and the assembling process until it was in production. The change in metals, uh, the Germans were uh, way ahead of us as far as the metallurgical stand in, uh, during the war, hmm. such as hitting metal hard, uh, cold, and having the molecular structure of that metal um, more in conformity so it strengthened that particular piece. But mm. anyway, uh, some of it was metallurgical that I went through, but just a whole change of, oh, my goodness, uh, you know, disc brakes, the front-wheel drive, uh, the uh, clear direct drive rather than torque drive, mm. and all of the multiple changes uh, that went on in the automobile industry. So... Not that I had any influence on it, but it was just fun to be part of that because mm -hmm. it was always something new, coming aluminum engines, uh, all that kind of stuff. So I enjoyed that, but personnel, I never had the opportunity of working with any good, strong Christian men, mm -hmm. and I got very disillusioned as to... As well, I kept looking at my supervisors, and you know, I won't work my tail off to be like that. And I just got disillusioned. And I had a very, very close friend, Dr. Henry Brandt. Hmm. 
He was a Christian psychologist, author, public speaker. He was part of a three-man team that traveled all over the United States uh, teaching human relationships to families and uh, just a great, great man. He was my mentor of spiritual. He was a Sunday school teacher at church. He set a goal. My goal, Dick, is to get you out of General Motors mm. and get you into a private business. So uh, seemed like he'd come home from a trip and he always had... Well, I got a wood shop that I want you to manage. Well, I got a hotel that's uh, looking for a manager. Well, I got this. And I, come on, Henry. <laughs> you haven't hit a home run yet. Yeah. So he set you a goal. You mentioned earlier that you're very goal driven. What right. was what were your goals at that time? They changed. Yeah. Because typically, when I graduated, boy, I want to work my way up, and I was in the process of working up. But the last two or three years, by my faith, I just think that the Lord gave me a very disillusionment that money is not my goal, and that's a big step. Mm. It's self-satisfaction, which I had, Mm -hmm. but work environment, job fulfillment, those things become much more important to me than money. And I think... I would like to be able to tell the youth of today that are so set on money as their goal, as their, I I shouldn't say this, but it's almost like a little god to them. Mm -hmm. Boy, if I can get money, I'll have it made. If I can get, well, story after story, as you well know, lots of people with money, very, very disillusioned. Yeah. And lost in some cases. And, lost. and there are lots of people without money who are also disillusioned and lost. So right. money isn't the... No, no. We can see from, from observation that money isn't the key to happiness or unhappiness. Right. So you, you worked in the auto industry for 16 years. You made a transition. What did you transition to and why and how did you come to that decision? <laughs> what I'm going to tell you is hard to understand by... Anybody with a common sense. But uh, this Dr. Brandt that I referred to, he uh, got home from a trip and he says, uh, Dick, I've got a couple of tickets in my hand that I'm giving to you, and I, you're not going to say no because I want you to do this. And it was two tickets. Remember, we lived in the Flint area to fly to Portland, Oregon, and there will be a fellow there to meet, meet you. And he'll explain to you why you're there. (laughs) And I said, Henry, I'm not going to fly all across the nation just to meet somebody. Because I kept reminding him of all the suggestions he had before. (laughs) So before I got on the plane, Kay and I got on, we found out that it had something to do with restaurants. Mm. Restaurants. I don't even know how to boil water without burning it. You know, (laughs) that that just didn't fit. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll go out and meet him. Well, it was, we met a fellow by the name of Bob Farrell. And uh, Bob was the entrepreneur and originator of Farrell's Restaurants. At that time, they had about 60 restaurants in the nation. Bob told Henry Brandt uh, that he had the Michigan franchise for sale, and he would sell it to Henry if Henry would find a capable person to 
own and be a part owner and run the restaurants. Mm. That was Henry's, uh, Dr. Brandt's initiative of sending me to meet Bob. We had a good conversation. He's a Christian guy, super guy, super. Mm -hmm. Very outgoing, very... Make a long story short, I quit my job. Everybody thought that I would just flipped out completely because going up the ladder with General Motors and having all the amenities that the normal person would enjoy um, and to go run a restaurant. Hmm. But I came out to Portland and worked for a month uh, in the restaurants and learned the basic parts of management because my graduate work is in uh, personnel management. Uh, Justin, I've told you this story of uh, in my first year of graduate school, we had to read a book in the life of uh, Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. In that first chapter, they asked Rockefeller, what do you attribute your success to? And he said, the ability to surround myself with people smarter than I am. Yeah. I never forgot that. Mm. And so the first thing I went back home after a training... Who in the world knows in the restaurant business that I can hire? So that's how it all got started. Built seven restaurants, became the number one franchise of the Farrell chain. When Bob Farrell decided to sell the corporation and all the company stores to Marriott, Marriott came after me and I said, no, I'm not going to sell right now. We're doing very well. But uh, two and a half years later, Dr. Brandt called me in the almost, he was in Bermuda. Mm. And he, he said, uh, Dick, I just got a feeling that the Lord wants us to sell. I said, oh, golly, I don't have that feeling right now. <laughs> but uh, I had already got some bids of, of other people. The dairy that was supplying us put in a bid, and I thought I'd sell to the, if at the time came, mm-hmm. sell to the dairy. But in Marriott's agreement on a franchise, they had the right of first refusal to purchase the franchise. So I sold to Marriott, but in that agreement, I had to go with them for a minimum of a year mm. and still control and manage the restaurants that I built, plus many others mm. all through the Midwest and South. So I went with Marriott, and then I got a promotion to to uh, regional vice presidency, uh, along with other types of restaurants, and uh, fulfilled my goals. And I got another two years later to offer for another promotion, but I had to move to Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. And I had already attended a, a four-day meeting every month in. Washington with the Marriott Corporation, and uh, I, you know, saw enough that I did not want to raise four kids in Washington area. Hmm. But that was part of the deal. Uh, if I didn't accept that, I could keep my job as is. But I was doing an awful lot of traveling, and uh, the plus was that the family could travel with me in the summertime. The kids are out of school. And, we stayed in very, very nice motels. Of course, they got to swim in all the pools and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And so that, that they was, thought it was great. That was great. Yeah. But I, I turned it down. Well, my corporate experience by that time was if you decline a promotion, they put a little 
black mark next to your name and uh, you are probably going to be where you're at. So yeah. I quit. And another influence with Dr. Brandt, he had was counseling a fellow having marital problems and lived in Spokane, Washington. And mm. I thought, Spokane, I think the cowboys are still fighting the Indians out there in Spokane. <laughs> this was in 1978. Mm. Long story, in and out of Spokane at least five times, talking to everybody that knew this guy that we wanted to hire somebody to run their company. And it was a real estate and development and construction. Mm. They had 41 salesmen. It was a going concern. Mm. So, so let me let me stop you there for just a second. I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. Okay. You mentioned your mom being like the greatest influence in your life. What was her take on your changing from GM to the restaurant business? What did, What was her input? She never had any input at all. She mm. just said, son, I think if you are comfortable doing it, go ahead. My dad kept saying, restaurant business because <laughs> I never cooked at home either right. no both of my parents uh, never gave me any adverse so they were just counsel. supportive and very supportive and just said go do it we're we're cheering you on yeah. here basically I'm sure that was comforting to you and helpful oh, to, very to get comforting. that yeah yeah but then I keep you know the normal personality I kept saying after that decision is made but uh, we had another traveling uh, fellow that was great on uh, building up your emotions and uh, good feelings. And mm. uh, his name is Charlie Tremendous Jones. Oh, Charlie Tremendous Jones. I've heard of him. Yes. Yes. Great guy. Super. Great so you know, guy. you knew him personally, or yeah, got to. Wow. I didn't uh, <laughs> right away, but because I had him come and speak to our uh, our employees and. Bob Farrell had him come, and anyway, we become real good friends. So Charlie, one of his great decisions is make a decision, talk to the Lord. When your feeling is good, jump to those decisions and never look back. That was pretty good advice. Yeah, on, on one hand, if you if you don't have the faith that the Lord's going to carry you through, that's super scary. That is. But if you do have that faith and you've experienced that before, that's fantastic advice. Yeah. Yeah. And, so uh, so did Dr. Brandt, did he, is he your connection to Charlie Tremendous Jones? Yes. Or how did well, he through? knew him. Okay. Great big guy, man. Mm. And he was a very active speaker. He would come down off the platform and, and I say hit people, but he would <laughs> hit them on the shoulder and say, don't you think of that? And <laughs> he would move around the crowd that was listening to him. And uh, hmm. he's a super guy, super. He's gone now yeah. to be with the Lord. Very charismatic man. Uh, yeah, I've either seen or listened to some of the, the things tapes, that he's done. Yeah. yeah, Very cool that you had that connection with him. How did that relationship with him did did anything besides that rule trust in the lord yeah, give yeah. it to him and then go full bore at it yeah is there anything else back. from him from interactions you had with him that have have affected you and no one thing the not so spiritual side of it but he he had a great great gift of once he met you chances are he's not going to forget you mm. 
because when he, he had a thing that he hugged all the men and shook hands with all the women. And when he hugged you, you knew you were being <laughs> hugged. But what he was doing, he was looking at you and looking at some features that you did. Oh, yeah, Dicker, short guy, give a baba, And he, he, he planted that in his mind. And I saw Charlie in Hawaii. I saw him in different locations. Hi, Dick. Wow. Yeah, I, I know a man actually that lives here in Spokane. He's, he's a, a mentor of mine right now. Yeah. But he remembers everybody's name. Yeah, I know. I never had that gift. I do not have that <laughs> gift. And it's a fantastic gift to have. It really endears you to that person to right. know that no matter where I am, he's going to say, Hey, Justin, great guy. And I really yeah. admire that gift that not many people have. No, that is true. Now we're back to where you quit at Marriott. So tell, tell me what the next step was from there. After many trips to Spokane and meeting this guy and meeting, you know, his banker, his attorney, his uh, all of the people professionally that he was working with, and they all assured me, oh, yeah, you, you get connected with him. You're going to do good. So I did. I moved here to Spokane, 2,000 miles away, and didn't know anybody and, uh, to run this company. Well, I want to be very careful because the Lord knows my heart. I am not going to judge this man, but he was not living the life that I knew that he should be living. I don't want to go into all of the negatives, no. but anyway, all that to say is I recognize that. I faced him with it told him that I could not live in the, that kind of an environment. So uh, we had quite a difference of opinion. He, he told me to get my attorney and he was going to sue me and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was not a very desirable time of my life. I'm mm -hmm. 2,000 miles away from home where I knew more, a lot of people. I don't know anybody here, but... Um, I counseled with uh, a couple of pastors about what I should do. They said, Dick, you don't have an option. You've got to spill the beans. There's too many people that have got their money invested. Mm. There's too much at stake. So I did. When he brought his attorney into the conference room in uh, I walked in and he said, where's your attorney? I said, I don't, I don't need one nor I want one. Hmm. I know how I feel. And lo and behold, the attorney that he had about turned about face and became almost my attorney wow. before the session was over. So hmm. those were dark days. I moved here with all of our kids and uh, didn't know anybody really other than just an acquaintance here or there. So it was a time of really, come on, Lord, here are, I'm in a strange place, don't know anybody. Why am I here? Mm -hmm. The way I envision these types of situations is kind of like the cart the Wiley Coyote cartoons where he's walking along off, and he walks off a cliff, and all of a sudden he's looking around, and he realizes <laughs> there's nothing below me, feels the ground underneath, and then pew! Yeah. So in that situation... How 
did you land and how did you recover from that darkness as you as you put it it didn't happen overnight mm-hmm. I would say there was probably maybe a week to ten days wondering should I move back do I get back in the restaurant business if I do who do I work for it was a time not a frustration I had a certain amount of peace that someday the Lord's going to show me why I'm here mm-hmm and through that faith, just happened to meet a guy at church, owned restaurants, looking for somebody to take over the business. Of, he, he would still be involved, mm-hmm. but uh, to actually hands-on run him. And so I did, under the understanding. It wasn't going to last very long because I was looking for something a little bit different than that would be. But we weathered this few storms because he operated a lot different than I do. I always tried to put the customer first and he looked more like the bottom line was first. Mm -hmm. How old were you at this point about? 46. Wow. Something like that. (laughs) Not too much older than I am now. So I'm I'm admiring how these changes are happening and seeing whatever that means. Yeah. So seven to ten days, you're figuring things out, working for this, um, and I this guy with the for, restaurant for just a little while. Yep. So. Yeah, because I was, he knew that I was looking for something else, too. And then another friend uh, in church was had just started uh, cabling, and that was the introduction of uh, fiber optics. Yes, so he offered me a, a position of a vice president of personnel because he was getting big fast. Mm. And, but his uh, qualification was he wasn't going to do any jobs less than, I think, 3,000 lines. Uh, that means telephones and computers. Right. So he worked for big hospitals, colleges, cities, mm. industrial uh, complexes. So I did that. I have to be very, very honest with him. I am not technically oriented. Mm. I've never had a high, quote, technical job. I've never had uh, the experience of technology, uh, even back in the days when there was no computers. Uh, so even your GM position wasn't necessarily a high technology no, position? when I made that decision of engineering or personnel management. I went the personnel management mm. direction, okay. which is all good. Anyway, then uh, my wife and I had, for several years, said that we'd like to work, work our retirement years until retirement in a Christian atmosphere where we could feel that God had directed us in a particular area. I just had that as a goal and I filled out a form and I don't know where I got the form I don't know anything about where it came from Hmm. but it was an application that a a Christian placement agency in Seattle and I sent it in and just kind of told them a little bit about my background and what I was looking for well I got calls that were way off the base Hmm. so but all of a sudden, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, remember it very vividly, when Kay took a phone call and said, this is focused on the family, 
and we are looking for a person with Dick's background, and they had my whole resume and you know, the, everything. Mm-hmm. We'd like to speak to him, and if possible, have him come down and meet Dr. Dobson and Shirley uh, at his earliest convenience. So I didn't know that much about Focus. Mm-hmm. I, I listened to their radio broadcasts, and, right. but I really didn't know that much about them. So anyway, with a well, you know, I think this could be the Lord answering our prayers. So she and I packed up and went down and met Dr. Dobson and his wife. And, and where was Focus centered at that point? That was in um, Pomona. And I was only there for about a year as a personnel director and uh, some of the operations. It was my responsibility. And at that time, they had 420 employees, Mm. but they had outgrown their facility, and they couldn't hire qualified employees because at that time, the standard of living was going so high in Mm. the L.A. area, and housing was increasing, so they didn't offer the kind of salaries that would entice somebody to come in and So, at the end of just a little over a year, I was part of a four-man team that met with Dr. every week. And that was in 1980, 81, somewhere in there? That would have been in uh, 83. 83, and you're meeting, so your four-man team's meeting with Dr. Dobson. Right. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, gentlemen, I got news for you. Focus on the family is going to move. We don't know where. We don't know for sure um, what's all involved, but the board has decided that since we're landlocked, we're growing, we've got to move. And since we're so media-oriented, it doesn't really matter where Mm. we move to. So, oh, by the way, uh, Dick, you're in charge of the move. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) I've never had any experience in moving corporations. Mm -hmm. So... Reason for success, surround your people who are smarter than you are. Yeah. Okay. Well, Campus Crusade for Christ, Bill Bright, who I had the privilege of meeting before all this, he called Dr. Dobson and said, hey, if you ever think about moving, fly to Colorado Springs because they offered Campus Crusade $4 million if they'd moved their headquarters to mm. Colorado Springs. So even though I'd, I and another fellow had visited several locations where we hopped on a plane, and at this time I took an architect and, and another executive, met with the, the Broadmoor Hotel, which is the only, at that time, the only five-star hotel in all the state of Colorado. Mm. The people who originated the ownership made it a qualification of the corporation of Broadmoor that their profits would go mainly to El Paso County to improve the economic standard of El Paso Mm. County. So that's where this money comes from. Okay. They offered it to us if we would move there. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm. Make a long story short, the board accepted their offer and Dick was flying back and forth to Colorado Springs. Uh, The board had also directed me to lease some buildings and facilities for a while so we could find the ideal spot 
to build our future campus. So yeah. why do you think Bill Bright at Campus Crusade didn't... He had a better offer. Oh, he had a better offer, huh? He had a better offer in Orlando. Oh, interesting. And that's where they are now. <laughs> yeah, it included buildings and land and... Well, really cool. So you're back and you're leasing a few places to get the lay of the land and see how, how this is going to work out. And what did you what did you learn here? Well, I obviously I learned so much about Colorado Springs. By this time, the news had been out. It was in the papers and everything that Focus was moving to Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. So I, being the contact person for Focus in Colorado Springs... I was receiving phone calls from politicians, mm. governmental people in the city, and so that was a real, real blessing to mm. be able to talk to these people and get to know the economic standard of where Colorado Springs are. They were deprived mm. because at one time before we came, they were wanted to be the uh, software center mm. of the Midwest. Or, the, the Rocky Mountain the, area. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that fell through. And so they had a number of buildings empty. Mm-hmm. And it was just a paradise for... Yeah. I had the choice of one big bank building right downtown that was empty. Mm-hmm. And I took that. Huh. And I, seven buildings I leased to move focus to. And all that process was learning... You know, the influential people of the city, uh, pastors. Oh, I was on the radio and speaking lots. Mm. (laughs) And so that was a start. And then after there, my next assignment, really, after leasing these buildings and getting the move, we had 62 of United's biggest bands was the move. 62 of them, is that what you said? 62. Wow. Bands. Now, obviously, they weren't all packed at the same time, but over a period of two days, three days. Mm -hmm. And then the city police department in Colorado Springs dictated to me how many vans could cross the city limits at a time so that there wasn't a congregate of uh, Mm. big old trucks. Yeah. Wow. So that was very, very successful and went very, very smoothly and... And so the next move was by the board is now find a location to, for us to build a campus. Got 47 acres north of Colorado Springs, right across the uh, main freeway from Denver to Colorado Springs uh, to the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. Just up on a little knoll, just prime location. Beautiful. So, oh yeah, Dick, uh, you're in charge of the new campus and <laughs> building that. So for the next year after we were settled in the Springs, working with an architect and finding a general uh, contractor, which we found out of Denver, build a $35 million campus. Wow. I wrap up my kind of my life history is I learned management, a lot of management, with General Motors I lived the food industry because I had to design and build a kitchen that's going to serve, uh, well, then our employment was up to 1,200. Mm-hmm. And then our employment was, when we retired, was 1,450. Wow. So design a kitchen that's going to serve lunch 
and some breakfast for uh, you know twelve to fourteen hundred employees, and that was kind of a challenge. Mm, and then I used my telephone experience, the wiring, to install a system, and that was when computers were just really going. So we had to run computer lines to all the workstations. Mm. And anyway, all I'm saying is every bit of experience I had up until Focus, I needed to build that campus. So looking back, you see God's hand leading you all these different exactly. directions that exactly from, from a, an outsider's perspective looking at it, you go automobile industry, restaurants. Yeah. Telecommunications, yeah. that makes no sense. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Real estate. Yeah, yeah, real estate. That's right, yeah. real estate. It's an amazing feeling to lean on the Lord, and I just cannot overemphasize how much peace that gave me, especially, knowing that God's hand was directing me. Not that I did everything perfect. I don't mm-hmm. want to ever say that. And it was shown in my next phase, and maybe I'm jumping ahead of you, but after my campus was built and then I had a minor heart attack, mm. it was just a, too much. Mm. I was speaking still frequently. I was. I had a secretary that all she did was plan my itinerary for the next day and week. So speaking, you went to different churches and spoke, went to different political events and spoke, what type of speaking? Everything. Civic Everything. clubs, you know, Lions clubs, or normal club, all that, those kind of clubs. Uh, city meetings, uh, churches, because they all wanted to know who this strange group of people are that are focused on the family. Focus on the family. So, so was your topic of speech typically, this is who focus on the yeah. family, is this is what we do? What were kind of the main bullet points you would hit to let the people know, hey, we're, we're a bunch of good guys that are going to lift and, and, and help this community? Well, the first and main point I always had is we're a Christian organization. We have the moral values of the Bible that we stick to. We are, politi- we are not politically involved. We're not licensed to be politically involved. However, we can influence by Dr. Dobson at that time, he was speaking to two and a half million people every day. He was on most all Christian stations mm. in the nation. Justin, I could spend two hours to yeah. just to tell you the process of building miracle after miracle. Mm. Uh, things happened, and we. One of my secretaries, all she did was take incoming calls from everybody that wanted to do something for. Mm. Oh, can I go over and? And help paint the building. Can I can do? Can I make quilts. Can you take some quilts and all mm. that kind of stuff? And I'll just tell you one. Secretary says, Dick, there have a fellow on the phone that wants to talk to you. He's he says he's a uh, wood manufacturer, cabinet maker. And I said, What's he want? Well, he just wants to talk to you. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. So. I'm talking to this guy, and he's telling me that he's going to provide all of the wood, you know, chair rails, door frames, cabinetry. I said, sir, you don't understand the size of this building. It's big. Right. Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. I said, sir, 
I just cannot fathom that you want to donate. Well, he says, that's, that's what's in my mind. He said, would it help if you flew out here and, and met us and saw her, see her? And I said, where are you? He said, I'm in central Pennsylvania. Well, okay. Hmm. So I got my architect, and he and I flew out, and uh, this guy was a Mennonite. Hmm. He drove a Mercedes, but the church let him drive it if he'd take all the chrome off his car if, <laughs> when he delivered it. But anyway, he showed us, and then I got my eyes open. He's big, mm. and he made all sorts of flooring, cabinetry, anything made out of wood, he did it. Mm. So, well, maybe he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Right. Long story short, we had a great relationship, and he did. He not only supplied it, he sent a crew of you know, six or seven guys out and, and uh, installed it. Wow. And it was well, well worth more than a million-dollar gift that wow. this guy gave. That story is multiplied, not nearly the size, but the talent, it was very giving yourself a great feeling that God would direct those kinds of people to give that kind of... That's great. And, so, I, and I'm somewhat familiar with Focus on the Family, and I love the work that they do. I yeah. love the... I listen to some of the radio stations when I'm, you know, driving and it just happens yeah. to be on. I, I you know, I've, I've bought a couple of books that Dr. Dobbs has, yeah. has written, and I, I really find value in, in all of it, really. So. When he retired, he had written 14 books, and 10 of them were million dollars or million publication sales. So, wow. so in that experience with Focus, how, how long were you there with them? When did you retire from, from Focus? I retired from Focus in 1998, and I'd been there pretty close to 10 years. 10 years? Yeah. It was a, a, a grateful, just, oh, I'll end my story. When I went and told Jim that, that Dobson that I was going to retire, he said, um, what are you going to do? And he told me he'd like to have me stay and be a, a brid, build bridges between the city of Colorado Springs and, and Denver in the state of Colorado because we had seven different organizations come to Colorado Springs only to fight the principles mm. of focus. Yeah. You know, we had dead animals left at our door with paint over the structure. I hired uh, one and a half full-time security people just to patrol our facilities there because it was, that time the abortion issue was very, very high, the homosexual issue was very, very high, and people were busting just to parade around the facility and all that kind of stuff. And then I'll really kind of wrap up my, my story, I guess, is in that time, I got very involved in politics, and I went to GOP school in Denver, and I just really got, I met a lot of the congressional people in Denver. I was offered by a contractor of six figures if I had run for mayor. Hmm. So I went to the city, and they gave me an opportunity, along with some other people, of keeping my employment but work 
I think it was 10 days at all the various departments, the police department and the water department and the, mm-hmm. all the various departments. And so I did that. And that was great. I really enjoyed doing that. I just had a feeling, not that the Lord was in it, but Dick Herb would, wow, maybe I could. So then I started getting questions out to pastors. I knew about many, many pastors, not well, but I knew who they were and they knew who I was. All civically, everybody place that I'd spoken, I felt that I could count on them maybe for votes if I ran. That's... That's when I had my little heart attacks mm. siege. And in those days, I had to have a, a stint put in, and they had to strap to a table for 12 hours mm. so that you didn't move your body and the stint would seat itself. And Justin, you know me well. I'm not charismatic. I don't hear voices. I don't uh, speak in tongues and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But... Something told me, Dick, you're on the wrong road. Go back to Spokane with Mm. your family and minister to them. Mm. And I thought, that's not fitting what I want. So Kay came to visit me in the hospital that night. I told her, I said, honey, I think we're going to go back. Yo, what? (laughs) You got too many drugs in you. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Well, okay. Because we loved our house, we loved our neighborhood, we loved our church, we loved our jobs, we loved community, we were involved. We don't want to go back to Spokane. I got another strong indication from a fellow that visited me at Focus and uh, says, I know you, uh, you don't know me, but I, I'm here to tell you, you should go back to Spokane. I said, how do you know? Spokane. He says, I know something about you. I said, I don't know you. How do you know? He says, never mind. I'm here to tell you that you should go back to Spokane. Do you know who that guy was? No. You never saw him again? Nope. All right. So so now continue down this path here. Well, let's go back up to Spokane and find out, you know, what's the housing market? Should we really go back to Spokane? And on the way out, we lived in a gated community, a beautiful location up on the border of Manitou Springs and Colorado Springs, 7,000 feet. Mm. And going out the gate, the, the gate attendant, he said, uh, Hey, Mr. Herb, uh, you ever think about selling your house? I said, No, not really. Well, I'm a part time realtor, and uh, I think I might have a buyer for your house. I said, You're what? You don't even know what I want for the house, <laughs> because I don't know. Yeah. He said, it's all right. It's all right. All I want is your, will you pay me a commission if, if I sell your house? Well, I said, yeah, but I don't plan on selling it right away. That's all right. So we come up to Spokane for about 10 days. Not here, just visiting relatives and friends and all that kind of stuff. On the way back, Mr. I sold your house. You what? How do you know? He said, don't worry about it. It's enough. Well, as it turned out, the offer was a lot more than what? More than enough. <laughs> that I had planned yeah. on selling it. Wow. So I said, Lord, I think you're getting to me now that uh, 
you better go back to Spokane. So I had to give up the political agenda. And I'm not sorry I did because I would have made a poor mayor. I'm mm. too vocal on my convictions probably mm. to be a good mayor. My wife says you would not you have people like you and you like people. That's not going to happen if you get into politics. No. So that's a, a great example of my ways are not your ways. My that's thoughts right. are higher than your thoughts, that's you know. Right. That's right. Because once again, all logic points to this path has brought me to this point. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like I look at Moses, for example. Well, he was born a Hebrew, and his path took him into Pharaoh's court. Right. His path took him into this great life, you know. Yeah. And all of a sudden, one day, something happens. He wakes up. He goes off into the wilderness, and he starts this other path that he's content with. And all of a sudden, one day, the Lord says, Hmm, have you ever thought of this, Moses? Uh, no. <laughs> well, guess what? You're going to do it. That's such a interesting story and such an interesting life. I want to get to um, one more aspect of mm-hmm. what I know about you. So you come back to Spokane. Mm-hmm. Why and how and what got you into the Salvation Army? I'm very bored, uh, B-O-A-R-D, <laughs> influenced, and I... When I go back to my story at Colorado Springs, of when doctor asked me to go build bridges, over a period of probably just a few months, I was on 21 different boards, both in the city and uh, civic organizations, uh, Boy Scouts, uh, all around the gamut. Many of them are Christian organizations. But So when I come back to Spokane, I was on the board of Salvation Army and Colorado Springs, enough to really get quite interested in it. So when I came back, I went down and talked to the major in charge here, and he said, boy, would we love to have you on our board here. So I said, okay. But I joined Youth for Christ, and there's some other boards that I got involved in. And I am not ashamed of the fact that I think there are more lives changed by the work of the Salvation Army than practically any other board I can think of. Now, when I say life change, I don't mean from the secular world to the Christian world, Mm -hmm. but improvement from poverty to economic standard, or there has been a change in the family life through the Army that I was very impressed with. So that's why... I stuck with it, and I've been on the board now for 21 years, and I've been on the executive board for 15 of those, and I'm now voted to be a lifetime member. There's only two of us in eastern Washington. Wow. That's something I really love and admire, the Salvation Army. Mm -hmm. Um, I I see love your fellow man, love your neighbor as yourself. I see that exemplified as much, if not more, in the Salvation Army than pretty much any other organization I can think yeah. of. And I I really admire that. So on the executive board and on the lifetime board and, and, the, and the regular board there, what are some projects that you have had a hand in that have been most influential in your own thinking and, and in your own life? Well, for about the last 15 years, I've been kind of in charge of volunteers on major projects where it takes a a lot of volunteers to accomplish. 
my number one example is is the, the backpacks. Mm-hmm. Somebody got a dream of supplying backpacks in the city. That's been 10, 12 years ago. And so it was discussed on, within our board, and I said, I'll volunteer. I think that's something I would like to do. So through my engineering background, I formed a kind of an assembly line and contacted the schools because various grades take different school supplies. Got the word out, so people were donating toward our backpacking. And we started off donating in a day, uh, maybe four, five hundred, but uh, over eight years when I was in charge of it, we were given, I gave away 5,240 backpacks wow. two years ago. Fully stocked with school supplies and all that. All fully stocked with their with the backpacks. Mm. That, and uh, some time ago, we gave away turkeys and groceries on Thanksgiving. Any group activity that then usually I would manage. And we had some staff involved. I'm not saying that, but one thing I also want to get across, when anybody sees a Salvation Army officer, please, regardless of your faith, show a certain amount of respect because they have donated their life to God's work. And they have they received very minimal salary, but remember a major who's usually the core uh, directive in a city or a district, he not only gets a minimal salary, but he has to supervise, like ours, you know, a $9 million budget. He's supervising 60 full-time employees. He's a PR agent for anybody that wants somebody to talk to about the city, but uh, he's a guy that they want to come and see. He's got to be um, a pastor of a church of 120, 140 people, uh, operating weddings and funerals, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those responsibilities come down to, to him at a least salary, but talk about dedication and serving the Lord full-time, and I'd underline full-time. It takes a dedicated person to do that. Wow. I was not aware of that, and that's, yeah. uh, that's a good thing to know, and I, I already do respect that, but that lifts that respect yeah. a little bit more. Okay. And locally, most people recognize the Salvation Army here as the kettles at Christmas yeah. time. Please understand that those are not our employees. They're a temporary person who comes for minimum wage to operate a kettle. You know, if you see somebody that, and we have to pretty well maintain the standards of employment, readily saying that we're not hiring all the time people who are the finery, if I can use that word, of the human race, just so you realize that, and we feel good because we're paying them, and many of them can't do not have full-time work anyplace else, so they can enjoy a good Christmas by buying what we pay them in salary for them. So, yeah. But so many people say, man, I saw this kind of a odd-looking character. Does he belong to the Salvation Army? Well, no. He's employed by the Salvation Army. employed by, yeah. So I have three more questions for okay. you. 
first one, I want to go back. You you mentioned something, and it was in reflection on your work at Focus. You said, things fell into place. I don't want to say that I was perfect at everything. Can you share something with me about a time where you weren't perfect at it and you learned a lesson because of making a mis- maybe a mistake or not doing things the right way in, in that situation? Yeah, there's one thing especially, and this covers all the time that I was building the new uh, campus. There was so much that was fallen on my shoulders that I should have gone to Dr. Dobson and say, hey, look, I'm a little bit overwhelmed. I'm not doing what... But pride uh, entered into it. Selfishness entered into it. I don't want him to think that I can't handle this. I can handle it, but I hope I'm doing the right thing. And I don't know as I made any construction boo-boos, but, well, one of the things that just threw me for a loop. <laughs> right as before we were getting ready to our grand opening, Dr. Dobson, and rightfully so, God used that man greatly, but he decided on weekends he wanted to have a, um, where he would invite a bunch of doctors in and, um, kind of a and have a conference, thing. weekend conference on uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it would be nurses, and then it would be attorneys, and then it would be... So it was a set that he kind of outlined to me that over a period of time, it was about every other weekend that he was going to have three or 400. Mm-hmm. And I said, Doctor, my kitchen is supplied for lunches and part-time breakfasts. I'm not equipped to be cooking roasts and steaks and chickens mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Well, I don't understand. I said, well... <laughs> Just take my word for it. We're not equipped for that. Well, what's it going to take to get equipped? I said, I'm going to have to expand the kitchen considerably. Most restaurants, they have a section in the back of the house made just for salads and, mm-hmm. and, and produce. and that. Hand. We don't have that kind of mm-hmm. equipment. So anyway, he says, well, whatever it takes, go for it. So here I am getting ready for our grand opening and trying to get the finishing, and then all of a sudden this comes. And I left frustrated. Mm. And it worked out, but he had to, or I pleaded with him to delay one of the conferences till we could get equipped to mm-hmm. serve them. So pride, selfishness, I totally relate to that. And I think so many people that listen to this will be like, mm, yeah. I get it. If I'm in that situation, I'm going to be thinking, wow, I'm doing this great thing. I'm doing this great thing. And I don't want other people to think that I can't do it. Right. And I've I've done cover-ups, you know, like that where maybe expectations or what my expectations were of what I was supposed to be doing just overfilled my plate and yeah. I couldn't get it all done. It's a really comforting thing when we can, you know, say... I can't do this. Yeah. It's humbling and sometimes it's painful. But I think it's a lesson that I'm still learning painfully sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> I would be too if I was in the workplace. Yeah. Like right now, I'm computer ignorant, totally ignorant. You know, the apps and all this new stuff that's coming on. I don't know basic ABC in the computer world, but right. I'm glad I'm not in the industry or the corporate world now. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've come back to this a couple of times in this in this uh, conversation that we've had. You mentioned you're very goal oriented. What really? are some goals you're working towards right now? Well, they're minimal to the normal person, I guess. But the older I get, the more I am family oriented. The more I want to be involved with my family, the more I um, want to be informed. You know, we have 16 grandkids now, and they're 95% adults earning their own vocation, and and they're varied. So I just desire to facilitate the conversation and openness so that I can pray for them, so that I can relate to them in their language somewhat. So that's that's a, a goal right now. Uh, I am blessed beyond measure that God at my age, I'm 85 in December, that God has given me good health and a wonderful family and a wonderful neighborhood. And Justin's a great, great neighbor. And it, that is not nothing it doesn't have anything to do with my accomplishments but it's a goal or a desire that I have I love a family that's just overwhelming and I tried to explain that to our group over last weekend and it's hard to make somebody younger understand that but uh, I repeated myself the older I get the more my family means to me mm. And I think that gathering you had with family, was that kind of a goal that you were working towards, we want to do this? Or was that just that kind of fell into no, place? No, no, that, that was all the kids organized my uh, sons, wives, and my two daughters. That was all their originating. The whole planning, the whole idea, they asked us what we thought about it uh-huh. way back five or six months ago. But uh, no, they handled it all. Mm. Totally. In fact, I was told very bluntly, Grandpa, you don't need to know anything that's going on that weekend. It's all taken care of. So. <laughs> don't worry about it. Huh? Yeah. That's great. And it turned out very well, huh? Oh, it was perfect. Awesome. I'm so happy. The weather happy was perfect. That. The inner reaction of some of the cousins that didn't know each other. and Oh, it was just a blessing just to praise God. Yeah. I lied. I now have two more questions. Okay. <laughs> What is a passage or verse of scripture that throughout your life you have regularly turned back to at for either inspiration, strength, or reflection? Boy, there's many, many, because that verse predominant in my mind has changed due to my situation or environment or whatever you want to call it, um, has changed multiple times. But I also refer back to uh, Philippians. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, but it is God's peace that I bless you with. That um, even today, that's, uh, you know, we as a human race, I don't care what your background is or what your income is, we all desire peace. Peace of mind and uh, only God According to his promises, God's the only one that can give you real peace. That verse sticks out to me, but also many verses. So like I say, 
circumstances or time of life, my favorite verses have changed changed many, many times. But another blessing that God has given me that I didn't look for was he's, I've told you, Justin, he's placed six or seven men, and it has changed over the last five years, six years, who have lost their wives, who are going through a time of a little depression, who are going through loneliness, trying to adjust back into whatever normal is in a way of life. I've had the privilege of uh, having coffee, having lunch, just visiting, going for a drive with these six or seven men that have so desired friendship. Two of them are in home retirement centers now, somewhat physically handicapped, but can't get out. And they're just, their joy is exceeding when I, we're together and just go for a drive. Mm-hmm. I get great fulfillment doing that. Every retirement person, I'm sure, I know, well, what am I going to do? Yeah. And so many, well, I'll go home and sit and watch a little TV and maybe read a book. My answer to that, open your eyes. There are so many opportunities for retirees, to, especially if you're healthy. Unlimited. School kids are looking for somebody to come in kindergarten and first, second grade, read to them. Have them read to you. In hospitals, look at all the opportunities in hospitals. I think that is a fantastic takeaway from this conversation Mm. that I think more people than you know will be affected by that last invitation or challenge that you just issued. Your retirees in good health, open your eyes. That's fantastic. All right, closing question. You ready? Yay. And you've you've probably already addressed this several times, but I want kind of to encapsulate it. How has applying the wisdom earned and learned through your life made you a better disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's been a great, great influence in my life. Not that I am a missionary, not that I am, well, in a sense, I'm not ashamed of truth. I'm not ashamed of God's Word. I'm not ashamed of my convictions. Um, I don't want to grade myself on better or worse disciple because I have failings. Uh, Sometimes I get worried about something or sometimes I get depressed about having somebody share their their physical life and, well, if you're about this age, this generally will happen. And I've had so many good friends pass on to heaven for their uh, Alzheimer's or dementia and and then I'll forget where I had breakfast this morning and think, gee, is that the start of dementia? Or So those concerns, being a human, being like I am, that all I have to do is have a good devotional time and being reminded of the promises that God gave us and the grace that he has given us that today and has been for much of my life, my, quote, good feeling comes back when I get confused or depressed or whatever. That peace that sur- surpasseth all understanding. All understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dick. Hey, my I have privilege. had a great time with this conversation. So there you have it. 
the first long-form conversation that I've had with the No and Do podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you learned something from this conversation. I hope that as you open your eyes and look for ways that God can use you in this life, in this world, in your neighborhood, in your home, that you will take those whisperings that he's giving you and put them into action. Because once again, if I don't do what I know, it doesn't do me or anyone else any good. Thanks again.